0: Welcome to the Grateful Historians podcast. I'm Lavelle, along with Chance, and we are educators with a passion for rural, local, and regional Southern history. As always, I am joined today by my friend, colleague, and partner in crime, Chance Carden. We are here in Mathiston on this sleet and slight rain on a Saturday afternoon, February 6th, gathered to talk a little U.S. history as we always enjoy doing. Chance, uh, tell us, if you will, first of all, good afternoon, and if you will, tell us a little bit about the topic for today.
1: Thank you for having me again. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about uh, a little bit of medical history, um, and then probably one of the things I'm most excited about, which I I think is just very interesting. A lot of people don't know um, just how many presidential deaths that we've had and and how interesting some of them are, how unique they are. So we'll kind of delve into some of that. And then specifically, we'll get into the death of President James Garfield in 1881. So uh, go ahead and start us off. I think you're going to lead into the presidential deaths first.
0: Yes, um, so we've had a a very interesting history when it comes to our presidents. Um, There is, in our past, a belief by some that there is a curse on the presidency. And this really did not appear until more modern times, but um, the belief was that an Indian chief by the name of Tecumseh who would have fought against the United States Army in the early 1800s, right before the time of the War of 1812, that after a battle uh, that was that the native tribes lost, that he placed a curse on the United States and basically said that presidents who were elected in the years ending in zero would die. Uh, now, the interesting fact about this is we don't see evidence of anything about this curse until almost modern times. So almost a hundred years goes by before we, we see any reference to any curse, which already kind of places it in kind of a, uh, a light that may make this seem like something. Ah, we're not too really sure about this, but at any rate, it is interesting that the general who fought in the battle against Tecumseh was general William Henry Harrison and William Henry Harrison, who won this battle against Tecumseh and his brother, the prophet and a confederation of Indian bands, became president in the year 1840. Now, just a little bit of presidential history. We, we know that if there is an election, like let's take, for instance, the last presidential election, 2020, the new president doesn't take office until the following year. So it's the 2020 election. It's the 2021 inauguration. And we do that now in January, but we used to do this in March up until a, um, uh, amendment to the Constitution changed this. So, the 1840 election was won by former general and soon-to-be president, William Henry Harrison. Chancey had the most unfortunate presidency of anyone who has ever served as president. It was really very tragic in in so many ways. In 1841, in January, William Henry Harrison traveled to Washington, D.C. to give his inaugural speech, and when he did, He traveled in um, some wet weather, probably not unlike the sleety conditions that we're in today outside, but uh, very cold weather. And he insisted upon giving his inaugural address outside in this bad, cold weather, in this bad, damp environment. And he got sick. And he was president about one month, over three weeks of which were spent in bed sick. He had developed a case of pneumonia and he died. So the most unusual and kind of saddest. He had worked his whole life to become president after being general, and then he dies uh, about one month into his presidency. So that's the year 1840, okay, so, so nothing unusual at this point. But then in 1860, Abraham Lincoln becomes president, and in April of 1865, in his second term, as we all know, very famous. I, I don't think most people would probably uh, wouldn't know this situation. Uh, Lincoln goes to the theater to watch a play called My American Cousin. Uh, it's, it's the end of the Civil War. It's a time when uh, there's a lot of celebration in Washington over the ending of the war. And he has box seats in the theater that evening to watch this comedy. Well, a man by the name of John Wilkes Booth, a very famous actor who would have been well-known in Washington. Most people would have known him if they'd seen him on the street. Uh, who ha- So that gives him access. That gives him not only one access to the theater, but access to maybe the entire theater. He goes outside Lincoln's booth, pulls out a Derringer, goes into the booth where Lincoln is, walks up behind him, and puts the gun right to the base of his head and pulls the trigger. And the bullet embedded in President Lincoln's brain... And uh, he never regained consciousness. They carried him across the street to a boarding house type hotel. And after he died, some hours later, a very famous statement by one of the politicians in Washington said, "He now belongs to the ages." The president Lincoln died in April of 1865. So, 1840 now 1860. In 1880, President James Garfield dies in office. He's going to be shot by a man named Charles Guteau. and We'll get more into this case. We won't talk about this much except to say that's the third president in this time period that we're talking about um, that has passed away. So, 1900, William McKinley is president. He is at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. He is in a crowd of people shaking hands. A group of well-wishers come up to him to shake his hand And in that crowd is a man by the name of Leon Cholgosk, who was an anarchist, a man who was opposed to any type of government. And Leon Cholgosk walked up to the president, and the subterfuge was that he had his hand bandaged up uh, like it was injured. So that gives, gives him close access to the president. And as he walks up to shake his hand, he fires point blank twice into the abdomen of President William McKinley. Interesting note on this, President McKinley rolled over, a group of men attacked Leon Cholgosk and were about to kill him and President McKinley said don't kill him, don't hurt him and he also survived a number of hours. He was somewhat lucid for a number of hours and was able to talk. His wife came to his side and very tragically and leaned over him and said, I want to go too. And he said, we will all go at one time, but God's will be done rather than mine. And his wife sang his favorite hymn, which was Nearer My God to Thee, and he passed away. Uh, That was in the year 1901, and the new president, an unforgettable president, is going to be Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, who had been somewhat placed by the Republicans in the vice presidency because they didn't know what to do with him. And now he becomes president of the United States. So now that's the fourth one with a year ending in zero. So maybe, you know, people are thinking about this a little bit. Well, then in 1920, Warren G. Harding, who was elected in 1920, dies in 1923 of a heart attack. Uh, Interestingly enough, some people after he passed away, believed that he might have been poisoned. And I'll tell you why. Most people did not understand that during Warren G. Harding's time in office that there were some things going on in the government that really were not on par. Uh, He had a group of friends who were in the White House who he was really not watching over as closely as he should have. He himself would not really be described as corrupt, but unfortunately there were people around him who were, and he was just not keeping a good eye on those people. This group of people who gathered around him uh, probably were in government because of the benefits they could receive from it. And it was also said that President Harding was possibly having an affair. And some people believed that his wife had him poisoned. But since that point in time, medical science has basically revealed that he did have a heart attack. So he did die of natural causes. So that is the, what, three, five, that's five presidents in a row electing in the year ending in zero who died in office. Then that takes us to 1940. And this one kind of fits, but in a way maybe it doesn't because this is Franklin D. Roosevelt. FDR was elected in 1932, 1936, 1940, and 1944. He is going to pass away in 1945. Uh, FDR, of course, the president during the Depression, president during World War II. He is going to pass away about one month before the German surrender in World War II. So he did not live to see Germany surrender. Uh, but President FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt, is going to die of a stroke, and that continues this pattern of presidents with the year ending in zero. Then, of course, that takes us to the year 1960, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And it's a date that everyone remembers, November 22nd, 1963, on the streets of Dallas, Texas. Uh, President Kennedy, three shots are going to ring out in Dallas, Texas. President Kennedy, uh, the first shot apparently missed. The second shot hits the uh, President Kennedy and Governor Connolly of Texas. The third shot is going to hit... Uh, President Kennedy, unfortunately, in the head, and he will technically not be pronounced dead until they reach Parkland Hospital. The motorcade takes off to the Parkland Hospital in Dallas. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, he's nowhere close to consciousness at any point in time after, after that takes place, and he is pronounced dead about 30 minutes after his body is taken to Parkland Hospital. Interesting thing about this case, and I know we're here to talk about James Garfield, but a few things about this that are so interesting to me. Believe it or not, it was not considered a federal offense to kill the president in 1963. There was no such federal law. So you know what the Secret Service and the federal agents wanted to do as soon as he was pronounced dead. They wanted to get his body back to Washington. They wanted to do an autopsy in Washington, D.C. They wanted to get the new president, who was Lyndon Johnson, who was there with them in Dallas, back to D.C. as fast as they possibly could, but no federal law was broken. So technically, who had jurisdiction in this case? The Texas State Police. So as soon as this incident is over and they start trying to claim the body, the Texas State Police say, no, you're not. The, The body's staying here. We're doing an autopsy here locally. This is our crime. And believe it or not, Federal agents and state agents from the state of Texas drew guns on each other in Parkland Hospital and almost had a showdown over whose jurisdiction it was to take care of the body of President Kennedy. Now, I I think in most instances, people would say, in a national emergency, because remember, we don't know who did this crime immediately. Is this some foreign power? Is this, you know, we don't know. So it would behoove us to get the new president back to D.C. as fast as we possibly could. I think cooler heads finally prevailed, and they took the body back to D.C. And then, of course, all the other incidents that happened with it, it, I'd make a good podcast one day. But... By the way, we talk about a lot of, of stories. I, doing this one's a little bit out of the ordinary, and I should have mentioned this when we started. Chance and I are going to show we've got a few more tricks up our sleeves rather than just a, a, some, some local storytelling. We're going to talk a little occasionally about some, some broader topics, and I think that's good, too. I, I love doing local history, but talking about some of the broader subjects is good, too, sometimes. But that's not the end. Okay, so we're at 1960. In 1980, Ronald Reagan is elected president over jimmy carter and in 1981 ronald reagan is standing outside the streets of dc having just finished a speech about to walk to the presidential limousine and is shaking hands or actually waving to a group of people across the street when shots ring out and a young man by the name of john hinckley shot the president who did not know he was shot at the time that he was shot. He had his arm up waving, and the bullet actually hit the limousine, ricocheted off, and went in the president's body, and when they pushed President Reagan into the limousine to to go away as quickly as they possibly could, a Secret Service agent landed on top of the president, and President Reagan thought that they had broken one of his ribs didn't know he was shot, did not know he was shot until they got him in the hospital, got to check in. They thought maybe it was a heart attack or something along those lines, but he's starting to spit up blood in the, uh, in the presidential limousine. You don't, it's not a natural place to look for a bullet up under the armpit. So they didn't find it immediately had to do x-rays. And then they find that that bullet is just centimeters away from his heart. It had broken a rib and moved upward towards his heart. It was a 22 caliber devastator bullet, um, which is sometimes used by assassins. Why did this guy do this? Why did this guy shoot at President Reagan? He did it because he wanted to impress the actress Jodie Foster, who he had never met who he had sent letters to and who had thrown the letters in the garbage, but basically he, was, he sent her a final letter and said, you're not responding to my wishes. I have, must do something to show you my love for you, and that was to attempt to kill the president. Now, President Reagan is going to survive that assassination attempt. He's going to live through that surgery. It was touch and go there briefly, but Ronald Reagan in 1980 lives through that, and if you believe in curses, breaks the curse, so interesting, kind of, that that, that that happens that way. So that's kind of the background of some of our presidents. That, that's seven of these presidents? Is that right? Seven? Eight, including Reagan? Including Reagan. So seven of those died, and we also had one other president who, who died in office. So of those who died, seven of those died in those years ending in, uh, elected in the years ending in zero. So pretty interesting. But that kind of sets the table for, for where we want to go from here. Let's, let's carry this down the road just a little bit further.
1: I think it's worth mentioning too, and we don't have a whole lot of time to you know talk about it, but uh, George W. Bush, elected in 2000 is also going to have an assassination attempt in 2005. Um, and again, just for those who are interested in the curse of Tecumseh, I, that's very to me, it's just really fascinating and interesting. but again, another one who, like you're saying, uh, Ronald Reagan breaking the curse, but having that assassination attempt as well. Now, before we move into actually discussing uh, James Garfield more specifically, I'd like for you to help put this event in historical context, uh, specifically dealing with, I mean, we're in 1881 uh, on the cusp of a change in the medical field and in medical thought. Just try to put that into a little bit more historical context first.
0: Okay, so I think it would be worthwhile for those who are listening who kind of want to understand the the science of this and how this event is going to change history. This presidential assassination is going to change things. I think it's interesting um, and would be worthwhile to go back and think just for a second about medical thought and how people believed about germs and about how we got sick and that type of thing. And chances, you know, medical science has been a trial and error process for a long, long time. Unfortunately, in the 1800s, it was not unusual. And you think about this today and people think, well, that's crazy. But it was not unusual, say in the 1850s or so, for medical uh, universities to hire people to go rob graves. They would hire grave robbers to go rob fresh graves so that they could study corpses because they didn't have an understanding of the functions of the human body. So they were able to learn from that. Now, certainly not ethical that they did these things, but it did bring about a better understanding of the human body. But to go back one step further, let's take this back just a little bit further than that. There used to be, for a long, long time in human history, a belief called the miasma theory. And basically, to put it in simple terms, what it meant was people believed that bad air caused you to get sick, would cause disease. Um, If you breathed polluted air, you would become sick. Now, in in one sense, they were kind of right They were observing things, and they were kind of right in this sense. It it wasn't the air. It was the germs that they were in close contact with other people that were distributed through the air that was causing the disease, but not the air itself. But they believed, for instance, if you were around a dead animal, and that scent, that terrible stench that comes up from a dead animal, that that scent would make you sick. In the same way that they believed, and this is so strange, but they would believe that an obese person could be standing in a room where there was a lot of rich food and that the odor of those rich foods could make you gain weight. They believed that the air itself was what carried these things, and therefore that was what made you sick. Now, they fell into what we call in classic logic a post hoc fallacy. Okay, so there's this Latin phrase, post hoc, ergo prompter hoc. And if you translate that into English, it roughly means afterwards, therefore, because of. And I'll give you a real simple example to to the listeners. Suppose a farmer early in the morning observed a rooster crowing, and then the sun comes up. Okay, well, it would be a logical fallacy to say that because the rooster crowed, the sun came up. So, so they were taking an event that they observed and making it the cause of the events that later followed, and that's a, that's a logical fallacy. Here's an example of it, a real example. Back in medieval times, back in the time of the Black Plague, crowded cities had such high infection levels. Well, wealthy people saw this and believing this my asthma theory that was going around thought this bad air will make me sick, I have funds, I will go out to my country manor miles away from everybody else where the air is pure, and therefore I won't get sick. Well, not because of their reasoning, the air, but because they weren't around sick people, yes, a lot of them were spared which only caused even more people to believe this theory. If you get out of bad air, you're going to be okay. So that's the kind of the miasma theory. Here's another one, and this always amazed me. It's kind of disgusting, and we're going to have to talk about some disgusting topics, and this is, I'm just sorry, it is. But for a long time, people would observe rotten meat. Let's say an animal died on the side of the path or the road or whatever, and later they observe maggots on that meat well they couldn't see flies landing on that meat laying eggs which is the larva stage of of the next flies they couldn't see that so they assumed that that air surrounding it was causing that to happen so again another case of a bad observation they were seeing things but it wasn't the cause the immediate cause but it wasn't the real cause of what was happening Okay? And our history is filled, absolutely filled, with medical mistakes, one right after the other, as I said earlier, and it's sort of a trial and error process. I'll give you one. I'll give you several. <laughs> the Romans used lead, lead pipes, lead plates, lead utensils, drank from lead cups, etc. They were poisoning themselves without knowing they were doing it. Um, that's an example of, of a, of a mistake throughout times, more modern times. We could go up into early 1900s, it, take an old, Sears, you can get, find reproductions of these things, but look at an old Sears Roebuck catalog from about the year 1900, you will find in there a medical device called a bleeder in which people hooked a system up to themselves that had razor blades on it. Cut themselves, placed a bucket or a pan underneath themselves, and thought, "I have too much blood in my body. I will drain some of it off." Particularly, people who had uh, inflammation in their bodies. Okay, just like we might feel a let's say a water balloon full of water, and you take some of that water out, and it reduces the size. People actually believed there was too much blood in their system, and that was causing you to be ill. So you drain some of it off. And guess who this happens to? In the year 1799, our former president, George Washington, gets sick with a sore throat. And it was a bad sore throat. In fact, it was so closed up, his canal was so closed up that he was having difficulty, almost strangling. So they bring in doctors. And those doctors bled 40% of the blood out of his body. And obviously, you know what happened in his already weakened condition because of what he's going through, this infection that's in his body, and now his body is having to try to produce more blood just to stay alive, and it weakens his immune system even further. He gets sick even more, and he dies. Now, did he die immediately from the effects of losing blood? We can't say that, but we can say that the bleeding system led to his demise. There's no doubt about it give you one more. 1822, we knew absolutely nothing about the human stomach and how it worked. There was a doctor by the name of William Beaumont who treated a man by the name of Alexis St. Martin. Alexis St. Martin had accidentally gotten shot by a shotgun blast of buckshot to the stomach, and chance it created a hole in his stomach that exposed the inner workings of his stomach, and people expected him to die, but he lived through it. And Dr. Beaumont realized this has medical potential. I can see the inner workings of the stomach by observing him lying in bed, and I can look and see what actually causes our food to be broken down. And since I've already gone down the disgusting road, let me go a little bit further. Dr. Beaumont tied meat to a string... <laughs> chance is getting chance of saying this is awful over here and it is he tied meat to a string and lowered the string through the hole directly into alexis saint martin's stomach Waited, pulled it back out and observed that the acid was eating away at the meat now up until this point in time we thought that the stomach by contracting actually broke down the meat. And it partially does. But then he was able to lower a small device down into this hole in his stomach and draw out some of the acid and test the acid. And the conclusion was the human stomach's processes are a chemical process rather than strictly a mechanical process. And that's just how that's a little background on how much medical science has advanced through the years. And up until how recently we didn't understand much about anything related to that. I am going to pause at this time, and we would like to mention our sponsor. Grateful Historians podcast is powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. You can contact Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750 for all of your land improvement needs. If you need a pond built, a levee cleared off, you need some bush hogging done, some stumps dug, an access road or a lane, maybe even a house pad, any and all of your land improvement needs, needs you would do well to contact Austin McGinnis at McGinnis Dirt Services. His number is 662-552-7750. The Grateful Historians podcast powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. That number again to reach Austin McGinnis, former student of mine, 662-552-7750 for your land improvement needs. We'd also like to mention that you can see Michael Cobb at Farm Bureau Insurance for all of your insurance needs. Michael can help you with your insurance from coverage for your home and autos to life insurance plans, all tailored to meet your individual needs. Farm Bureau is a Mississippi company, and Michael is a local agent committed to taking care of you. So, go with the home team. Call Michael Cobb at Farm Bureau Insurance, 662 258 7802 again that number 662 258 7802 and chance I think I might have disgusted my listeners with everything we've talked about so far but hey uh, it's it's history so I had to tell it let's take this thing back a little bit closer to our original discussion which is after discussing all of those presidents who had passed away let's take this back to president James Garfield who was elected in 1880
1: yeah, I was just about to try to steer you back away uh, from that medical discussion. I think, think we've all ha- heard just about all we can take of that for now, but uh, we'll go into um, basically figuring out how all of this leads us to the assassination of uh, James Garfield and, and how it's in evol- or involved in that assassination. How does it uh, contribute in some way?
0: Okay, so if we had to understand the medical background just a little bit, I think it also, to understand this case thoroughly, we need to understand the politics of 1880. And there were two groups uh, politically who are vying for some political power who we need to discuss. That group, one of the groups, unusual names, one group called the Stalwarts and the other group called the Halfbreeds. And Chance is going to tell us a little bit about these two groups and explain to us just a little bit about what we mean by these two names, stalwarts and half-breeds.
1: Well, during the administration of Rutherf- Rutherford B. Hayes, um, in the, uh, right, just right after Reconstruction, after the Civil War, the Republican Party is going to be split into two different factions. Uh, the stalwarts are going to be the more conservative faction, basically seeing themselves uh, stalwart in the opposition to Hayes' efforts to reconcile and make amends with the South. And stalwart itself means to be like loyal and hardworking. And they basically opposed any forms of civil service reform and preferred to keep in place that existing uh, patronage system, basically winner-take-all, spoil system, rewarding your uh, supporters and friends with federal positions at the uh, federal level after winning an election. And on the other hand, we have the half-breeds who were a moderately liberal faction of the Republican Party. And in the minds of the stalwarts, the term half-breed was meant to suggest that they were only half-Republican. Uh, the half-breeds backed Hayes's lenient treatment of the South and supported this idea of a civil service reform and trying to do away with that patronage system.
0: Okay, so we have President Garfield who is marginally a half-breed. He would not be described totally as one, sort of almost apolitical when you get to this discussion of these two, but marginally a half-breed politically. But his vice president, a man named Chester A. Arthur, is a dedicated stalwart and has been involved in the political machinery of the Republican Party at that time, is very heavily connected. You have to understand that when Garfield is elected, Things are very different politically today than they they were at that time. James Garfield went to the 1880 Republican Convention just as a delegate, not really as a candidate. But because the Republicans could not reach a consensus on a candidate, he became what's called a dark horse candidate, placed on the ballot, and eventually enough of those electors there nominated him to become the Republican candidate for president. You remember back in those days, so much of our politics were done at the convention level. So the political conventions today are more like a TV commercial. They're a week-long TV commercial. They're just uh, really validating what the primary process has already decided. But back in that time period, that wasn't the case. So uh, Garfield, kind of out of left field, becomes president. And he names Chester A. Arthur as his vice president. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. This is where we introduce a man by the name of Charles Guteau, who was a very, very unusual man. He had spent a brief amount of time as a reverend. He had spent a bit of time in a political commune. He had gone from house to house, basically living off of handouts and that type of thing because he just... He was one of these kind of people who just could not find his way in life, Um, had been married, been divorced. But in 1880, right before the presidential election, he had written an article explaining why he, Charles Guteau, believed that James Garfield should be elected. And this article appeared in some minor newspapers, nothing major. It was not something like nationwide, you know, people read this but it did appear in a couple of publications. Okay, so Garfield is elected. Gouteau believes in his fevered mind that the fact that his article endorsed Garfield was the reason that Garfield was elected. So being a quote-unquote stalwart, as some of the Republicans were and some other politicians were as well across the United States, you know what he's going to expect a government position, a government job for his loyalty to the president. Guteau is going to move to Washington, D.C. with no money and no resources and no job. But he is expecting that when he gets to D.C. that he is going to be invited into the White House and that they're going to shower him and thank him for all of his contributions to Garfield being elected president and that he will get a position. He wants to be the counsel to either... Vienna or Paris in Europe. And that's the position that he thinks he's going to get, sort of a diplomat type job. Well, they don't even know him. They haven't even heard of him before. So when he shows up in Washington, remember, in that day, it was possible to go to the White House and literally walk to the front door, knock on the door, and gain entrance to it. It's just not like it's a difficult process to get in. They invited him in the door. He goes and sits down and takes a seat, and he spends time goes up to the desk and says, you know, I'd like to speak to the president. We'll see if he can speak to you, that sort of thing. And he does this for a number of days and finally gets one chance to talk to the president. The president gives him an audience, but he doesn't hear back. And then he starts talking to other politicians in Washington and basically demanding that they give him this government job. And finally, one or two of them say to him, don't even mention it to us again. We're tired of hearing about this well, he's living in Washington. He doesn't have any funds. He doesn't really have a place to stay. The only way that he stayed alive during this time was he would go to a boarding house and then skip out before the bill was due and go to the next one. And by now his clothes are starting to get a bit ragged. Uh, he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have an opportunity at any sort of job. So he's just hanging around hotels and, What he does during the day is he goes and sits in the lobby of hotels and uses the free stationery that they have there and writes these letters to congressmen about his skills and ability as a politician and how he would help the administration, and that's how he spends his time. But eventually, even he realizes his failure. And as a last resort, in his mind, he thinks, if I kill the president, who is this marginal half-breed, remember politically, and they insert Vice President Chester A. Arthur into the presidency, because that would be who would assume the presidency, who is a stalwart, he would be sure to get this political job. He thought he was assassinating a political tyrant, that the people of the United States would rise up when he did this, and that they would applaud him. He even figures out the weapon that I'm going to use to do this, I want to make sure it's a good-looking weapon so that when it's put in a museum one day that it will be nice looking and that sort of thing. This is what's going through his mind as he starts taking the steps toward assassinating President Garfield.
1: Okay, so with that being said, how did Gateau go about the process of attempting to assassinate the President of the United States? What What was going through his mind, and what process was he trying to come up with to ensure his success?
0: Well, first of all, I think it would be beneficial to describe presidential uh, protection during that era. Uh, During the Civil War, we added more secret service protection to the president simply because it was a necessity with the assassination attempts against Lincoln and the threats of assassination attempts. We have to remember, up until relatively modern times, The president of the United States could walk about Washington, D.C. relatively freely. Presidents would go into shops by themselves. They would do shopping. They would take walks down the street. Uh, It was, again, as I said earlier, relatively easy to walk into the White House and get a reception. So, uh, you know, things have changed totally. And sadly, we can't do that anymore. That's impossible. I, I feel... I don't care who the president is. I feel somewhat bad for them today because they live such an isolated and insular life. It, they are insulated from the public all the time. They don't drive a car. They can't. You know, um, I think president Reagan would go out to his, um, he would go out to his ranch and drive a Jeep. But so many of these people lose touch. I, I know for instance, um, and this is not a knock on him personally, but it's just an understanding of how life in Washington is. President George Bush Sr. walks into a grocery store and saw a scanner that scanned groceries and was amazed by it. He had never seen a scanner in a grocery store, and those things had been in the grocery stores for 15, 10 to 15 years before his presidency. And, you know, but he never went to a grocery store. He'd not seen those things. That's just the life that they have these days. Okay, so James Garfield, though, back in this era, is able to travel about the city. Couteau wants to kill him. Well, number one, he has no money. So what he does is he goes and borrows $15 from a friend, and he goes into a gun shop, and he buys a pearl-handled revolver. It is a four hundred forty two caliber British Bulldog. The make was a Wembley, and The gun was once in the possession of the Smithsonian, and has now since been lost. We don't know where it is, but they lost the gun. At one point in time, they had it. Uh, Guteau had never fired weapons before he buys this handgun, but guess what? He takes this gun for a number of weeks, and he goes down to the Potomac River in Washington, D.C., and he starts target shooting. He sets up targets, and what he finds out is he is a very proficient shooter of guns. That's what happens with the gun. He pays a little bit extra for the pearl-handled revolver, as we said, because he wanted it to be in a museum one day, he thought. Well, what about a location? Okay, so now you've got the weapon. What about, we know the motive. What about location? What about doing this? He saw one day where Garfield was going to be in a train station but his wife was going to be there Garfield's wife and he did not believe this or not he did not want to kill the president in front of his wife because he felt like she would be too upset i don't know what he thought would happen to her when he fe- when she was away from him and he died you know i'm not sure of the logical process there but this is the guy we're dealing with who just does not make good you know does not make sense so he doesn't take that opportunity he had an opportunity to shoot at him in church in a church service but he thought he would upset all the parishioners who were in the church service, so he let that go by. In the meantime, he writes a letter to the army and asks for protection by the army after he has killed Garfield. This is while he's planning this. He writes a letter to the United States Army asking them to protect him. Now, I don't know if that letter just didn't was not read or they thought this is some kook and we won't, we're we going to throw it in the garbage, But there was the opportunity to stop him at that stage, and it wasn't followed up on. So then that goes by. Well, he reads the newspaper one day, and he sees that on July 1st, 1881, President Garfield is going to be in a train station at a certain time, and that's where he finds the opportunity. And this is where he's going to fire the gun that is going to kill President James Garfield. Such an interesting setup to the actual event. There's so much background to these things that are happening, uh, the political processes, what's going through Guteau's mind, um, the, the 1880 election and the, the feud that's going on between the half-breeds and the stalwarts that lead us up to this. A chance to leave this on somewhat of a cliffhanger. I think we're going to pause at this stage. And we're going to talk about the actual event of his assassination and the whole follow-up to that and what happens to Charles Gouteau. We're going to do that in the next podcast. Tune in with us the next time that we do this, we'll continue to talk about that. But we are the Grateful Historians, and again, powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. We always want to leave on a note of something that we're thankful for, something that we're grateful for. I'm going to let
1: chance go first, and then I'm going to follow up with something of my own. Well, before we go, I also want to mention that uh, Gateau also asked for a tour of the prison in which he believed he was going to be incarcerated after murdering James Garfield. So I can't wait till we get into this next podcast and kind of delve into that a little bit more in his process. Um, I'm already making my notes about, you know, this argument over insanity versus premeditated murder. But um, I can't wait to get started on that. Uh, as far as what I'm grateful for, um, as always, the medical personnel, especially uh, during this time, during all times, but during the COVID pandemic, it's, it's just been an incredibly, incredibly hard job, uh, not to mention all the, the pushback from certain people in the public and um, conspiracy theories and just having to deal with all of that in the midst of other issues as well and just the fact that it's an already incredibly difficult job. Uh, so just a big shout out to the medical personnel
0: and chance thank you for mentioning that about um, about guteau and and the, and the tour of the jail just so much of what he did is so out of the realm of what is normal that, that you know you just wonder how he's able to pull this off how he's able to actually com- complete this process of killing the president I would like to say when we're talking about being grateful, I ran across something the other day, and Chance mentioned this a couple of podcasts back, but I'd like to mention it just a little bit further. Uh, I ran across something that uh, in our paperwork that showed that the Mathiston Volunteer Fire Department will be 75 years of service next year. And I don't think people out in the community possibly realize just exactly what they do. It is much more than fire protection. Uh, We are so blessed to have a group of men in our community who are trained medically to handle emergencies. They are the first responders who get there before the ambulances get there. And they oftentimes, I have personally witnessed it a number of times. They have saved lives of people who would have died before. And I'm not, again, just being able to be there quick because we have guys here in town who can move fast. Um, I have known them to do that. I have seen them save lives out on this highway. I've seen them save lives out on the Natchez Trace. Um, Hadn't been that long ago, a a man drove off and drove into a tree, and had they not gotten there when they did, uh, he probably would have lost his life. Uh, It is oftentimes, it is, again, a volunteer basis that they do these things, sometimes forgotten and, and oftentimes not given the credit that they deserve for doing it. I would like to say a big thank you to the Matheson Volunteer Fire Department, who serves a broad area of Webster County. They don't just deal with the city limits of Mathiston, but a big thank you to them for the job that they do and for volunteering to help everyone in the community as they do. We're going to continue with our next podcast. We're going to talk about what happens to President James Garfield, and we will continue with that assassination and the follow-up to it. We are the Grateful Historians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.